Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. In this episode, we continue the conversation with Professor Peter Hines, exploring his recent work from the book, The Essence of Excellence, and sharing insights on the topic of sustaining excellence journeys for the long term, techniques to avoid the frustration and impact of failed improvement efforts within organisations. Let's get into the episode. Well, Peter, thank you again for your time for our second series of this podcast. Um, you know, today we're going to be focusing a lot more on enterprise excellence and a lot of the work you're currently doing. At the end of the last podcast, Peter, you spoke about a lot of the reflection you've been doing around the work you did with Toyota around Peter Senge's work in the fifth discipline and other insights that you've had that really led you to the work you're doing now, the book you wrote on the essence of excellence. Do you mind recapping on that, Peter? What were those really big insights and real key moments that made it all sort of come together for you? Well, I, I suppose there are a number of things that that, that came together. I, I, I think one of the most important things in my career was spending three months working, uh, researching with Toyota in Japan. Um, that, that gave me some re- pretty deep insights into, you know, what Lean was about. And it wasn't just about tools and techniques. And um, as, as you know, probably till, I don't know, the early 2000s, um, most people sort of were describing um, Lean. I, I guess it was before the term enterprise excellence was really talked about. Um, talking about Lean very much as a, a series of tools and techniques. And, and then the Six Sigma sort of movement sort of filled in some of the sort of quality side of tools that perhaps some of the Lean guys had, had missed out a little bit on. And um, I, I suppose in that time in, in Japan, um, w- what I was trying to look at was, was trying to understand how Lean worked, not just in Toyota, but in the wider supply chain. Because what, what, what I established in that work was that nearly um, 80% of the product on a Toyota car was actually bought in content so the result of that was that if Toyota is so good it must be something to do with how they manage the supply chain not just themselves and the research which was actually summarized in an academic paper that came out in 97 uh, I think it's Toyota Japan and UK something like that long-range planning um, really showed that the gap actually got bigger as you got into the first and second and third tier suppliers that actually the gap that um, Womack Jones and Roos had shown between Toyota and uh, an, an equivalence in terms of productivity was less than two to one, but in terms of productivity was three, four, five to one when you got into a, the supply chain. So, so really that was quite insightful. And and I suppose one of the things, just to recap from last time, that I remember asking the Toyota guys, why is it that you're so good? And and the, the answer was the rigorous and disciplined application of the Toyota production system. And and, and really what I got to learn from that uh, eventually, and it took some time was that the rigorous and disciplined application of was probably more important than the Toyota production system. So hence, it was about the leadership, the culture, the behavior, that disciplined approach, um, the all going in one direction that was that was really key. And and, and at the time, I also read the, read the Peter Senge book, but probably didn't quite understand it well enough at, at the time. And he was really talking about soft systems. So in other words, looking at a whole system like strategy deployment or, or something like that. And, and actually, he was sort of seeing that as as a learning system um, and, and saying all of these systems should be learning systems. And probably at the time, I didn't really quite realize that was what I was seeing in Toyota, that it was really a learning system 
that they'd approached uh, and they developed. Um, it probably took me uh, 25 years after that to really realize that. But um, and, and that, that was sort of some of my uh, early thinking, I suppose. Wow. And so, and how did you find that transition, Peter? Like for someone that you're a systems thinker and you had a background in systems thinking right back to university, how did you adapt to this discovery that the soft skill systems are so important and that they're so paramount to sustaining an excellence journey? How did you find that, you know, really discovering that and making that shift yourself? I guess through that time well uh, I, I suppose you know uh, as we talked about last time my, my first degree was in geography which is sort of a social science so to some degree I was sort of seeing the world not just from a scientific perspective but actually from a somewhat people perspective as well but probably like most um, thinkers it took many years to really realize this and, and I started to see this in the early 2000s that actually that the people side was was really quite key but it probably started to crystallize when um, myself and my colleagues at uh, Cardiff University and SA Partners we wrote the book Staying Lean. Lean book was 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 around um, cogent power one company we looked at look four sites in particular in Europe and North America and and what we saw that they created some sort of sustainable system that as much of the effort was on leadership and behavior and engaging people as it was on sort Sort of processes and and um, improvement boards and the usual sort of uh, improvement sort of focus etc so I suppose I started to see it like that I started to use the words like behavior and engagement and leadership as well as sort of strategy and the uh, order fulfillment and the usual sort of lean areas so I suppose that that sort of mid 2000s was when I sort of started to think about this and, and start putting it together a bit. And Peter, I know you've become highly connected with the Shingo Institute and the Shingo Prize. How did that come about? Because of course, did that come about in line with that whole journey around the discovery of the soft skills and the people factor? Or how did that eventuate? I think it was a sort of, we were on parallel paths for many years. I think my first contact with the Shingo Institute was probably 2002, 2003, something like that. Um, when my colleague at uh, Cardiff University, John Buchano, he became introduced to the Shingo Institute and he started to um, popularise their approach in the uh, the Lean Masters there. And we sort of started to get to know them a little bit. Um, I, I was doing some stuff very parallel to what they were doing. And in fact, uh, around the late uh, 2000, 2008, 2009, something like that, I wrote a paper called The Eight Ps of, of, of Lean Thinking which was really around eight principles that uh, should be adopted. And people, process, uh, purpose, uh, planet. And then I actually read some of the Shingo stuff and they were talking about 10 principles. And I put the two together and they, you know, they weren't a million miles uh, apart. Um, I think my, my emphasis was a little bit more on supply chain, probably a little bit more on sort of environmental management. Probably some of their stuff was a little bit stronger on some of the respect for people side of things. But, you know, they weren't a million miles apart from each other. And I, and I sort of saw, well, you know, th these guys have been doing this for a while. So let, let's use that approach. So I then got to know them because uh, the, the Staying Lean book, we applied for a Shingo publication award and we were fortunate enough to get that. So we started on a journey together and later became an affiliate and you know such was the journey after that sort of thing yeah no it's been a strong one i know now betty throughout this interview so far you really put across your passion for the environment like you mentioned it a number of times in the last episode you've mentioned purpose and also the environment where, where does your passion for the environment come from because i know you've written a book called lean and green with kevin zokai and a number of other um, team members and i've always known you've been passionate about it but i don't know the backstory 
Like where does that passion come from? And then you've really applied it to how businesses can get economic and environmental gains at the same time. Sure. Also, the the third pillar, the the people side and the social side as as well, and sort of you know treatment of people and fair wages and, and, and these sort of things as well. I I think probably my upbringing was sort of somewhat like that. It wasn't specifically environmentally focused, but uh, my family background sort of had some Quaker roots and so forth, and that sort of came into it. And I'm a lifelong vegetarian, um, so actually there's some sort of environmental sort of things going on there. You know, I, I was sort of interested in this at university um, as as well, and and studied things like soil science. And um, I suppose I started focusing in the research side on the environment really from the very beginning. Sort of from the first academic work I did was about 1991, actually before I was even on the university staff, and I developed a developmental model of of lean. That, that had five stages a sort of evolution of lean I suppose and and actually the fifth stage was called lean so it was wow. green and lean was 1991 but oh, you wow. know at that time absolutely no one was interested in the green uh, agenda and certainly not putting it together to to, to lean I, I suppose my wife and I, I remember we, we had a holiday and uh, probably a Oh, this would be mid 80s and we went to the alternative technology center in McConfleth in Wales and and that was sort of one of these sort of hippie places that was about recycling and you know all these sort of green things and compost toilets and and we went round and said, well, you know, we're doing most of this stuff. So I suppose we sort of were doing this sort of thinking right from uh, early stages. And so, I mean, putting the lean and green and, and writing the book um, with Kays Kogan, Sakai and, and a couple of other guys, um, you know, about five years ago, it was really a fairly natural uh, extension to, to that, um, you know, lean uh, side of things. It's been amazing the difference you've made. Like when you think of the companies that you write about in lean and green, and the, the carbon reductions and the cost gains that they've had and the society gains, it's a, it's a real proud point. You've achieved so much that I know then is like a catalyst that spreads. You know, I've seen what you've done in Europe spread into Australia and other countries and it's very sure. impressive. Good, good, thank you. And Peter, you, the recent book, Essence of Excellence, sure. I think I spoke to you a little while ago and I, I said to you, like to me, it's like the ultimate book in enterprise excellence. It brings it all together and it's helped me so much in my career. How did that book come about? And what made yourself and Chris Butterworth decide to write that book? Well, I suppose, uh, you know, Chris and I, um, we'd actually worked together for, um, I guess, nearly 25 years in in, in some ways or others. And uh, we, we first started to work together I think in 96 or 97, something like that. And uh, at that time, Chris was uh, working in what's now Tata Steel. Um, and he was a customer development support person, uh, if you like. That was his manager, his, his role. And and I was working, you know, at the Lean Enterprise Research Center. And we sort of saw this supply chain in reverse. In other words, not just going back in the supply chain, but going forward into the supply chain and this customer development. So we'd, we did a three-year research program together that was like a customer development supply chain, which was which was great fun. And then um, Chris came and joined SA Partners and we, we did various work together. And um, I suppose um, we we started to think about this probably in the mid-teens, you know, mid-2015-ish. And um, we were sort of reflecting on... Um, some of the work that we've been doing or some of the research or some of the visits we'd made to companies over the last sort of four or five years. And, and it struck us that, 
there wasn't quite a book that was quite right in terms of uh, you know what we were doing. I suppose David Mann's book, uh, the Lean Culture book, was was probably one of the closest that, that we'd seen, and there were one or two others from Jeff Liker and you know other people that we quite liked. But we didn't think anyone had quite written a book that as we saw it. We sort of reflected on what we'd been doing over those years, and we reflected on the excellence that we'd actually been seeing in the various companies that we'd either studied or we'd worked with or helped or, or, or something like that. And, and it struck us that, you know, many of them had in some ways some, some excellence, but probably no company had the whole the whole picture that, that we were looking at. So we reflected and between us, we'd probably been to or, or worked with uh, about a hundred companies over that uh, five or five year period. And we sort of started to think about, well, what, what actually is excellence? And we, and we started to think about our framework and, 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 and if you like, the idea for the book came out of, uh, out of that thinking. And Peter, I've looked at that core model you've got in there, the Beskilled model. That was very impressive. And I guess that's one of the frameworks you've got in the book which is that behavioral and strategy deployment, continuous improvement, leadership or leader standard work, and then the learning side of things. Do you mind taking it through? Like, is that the skilled model in your mind a really key model to help an organization think of achieving a sustainable excellence journey? I think so. So, um, I mean, last time we talked about thinking about adopting and creating a sustainable journey is like sort of two sides of a bridge that you need the hard, the technical, the, the you know, the lean, the agile, the Six Sigma, you know, tools and techniques. You know, we, we all know about that quite well. And it's quite easy to conceptualize that. It's quite easy to write it down, PowerPoint slides, you know, write books about it. It's quite easy. The other side of the bridge, this sort of people and culture is is a little bit more ethereal and, and it's much more difficult to learn that. And the only way you learn that is sort of almost by osmosis, by talking to people, by being coached and, and this type of thing. And what we saw was that, you know, from long history, you do need some systems and, and, and processes. And, and clearly for many organizations, the, the core three processes that you need to manage is the fulfilling of orders from order coming in to shipping the product which obviously a lot of lean focuses on the second process being the winning of new business so the sort of sales and marketing which obviously you'd be very familiar with that as a as as a process and and the third process being the development of new products and new offerings which obviously is is another core process probably historically we've done quite a lot of work and thinking of those processes but what we found was if you just look at those processes without some of the underpinning systems in place they don't sustain well and and hence the conceptualization of the be skilled was if you looked at all these organizations what were they really doing that actually made a sustainable system and we were also quite influenced by the shingo uh, framework and the, and the shingo model so if you take the the be skilled model you have to set it in the context of actually adopting principles and values into the organization and and hence the problem with that is you know there probably isn't a multinational company on the planet that doesn't have a set of values And they're probably all pretty much the same, you know, integrity, teamwork, value for the customer, you know, and it's all it's all fantastic. The problem being for most organizations is that that's as far as it goes. You know, it's a nice poster on the wall. And and if you ask even senior executive, what are your values? They can usually reel off two or three quickly, but the other two or three, probably they can't even remember what they are. So in other words, they're not making an impact. 
if you think about the values, what we're trying to do with values is create a positive culture, which is great. But culture is probably a sum of, if you take the work of, of Sheen, for example, you know, the artifacts. And, and also we very much think like the Shingo Institute around the behaviours. So the sum of behaviours is the culture in the organisation. So hence, the starting point is not just strategy formation and deployment, which, which obviously we, we have to do hoshin planning, etc., which gives us in best case, the what do we need to do? Hopefully also the why, which is sometimes missing, but it doesn't give us the how in terms of culture. So the starting point for most organisations is only the what, it's not the culture. So actually adding the behavioural and strategy deployment means that we start with values and principles, we turn them into behaviour, we deploy them down into the organisation. So that first element, if you like, the plan, the planning the organisation is the what, the why and the how in terms of the culture. So that's the starting point. So adding from traditional strategy deployment a little bit. The second bit, which is probably home turf for anyone with a sort of lean or agile or, you know, Six Sigma or theory of constraints or whatever, is some sort of improvement activity. Now, whether we call it A3s or sprints or, you know, whatever, or each of the methodologies has has some sort of improvement. And, uh, you know, whether they're discontinuous or continuous or they're looking at end-to-end processes, that's probably a better known part. So the continuous improvement is the do, but the do not just on the technical, but actually on the behavioural side as well. So the improvement is as much focused as improving this side of the ridge, the cultural side, as it is about improving the technical side. So that's the do. And then what we found with, with many lean organisations, certainly that hadn't got to a high level of their journey or high level of maturity is they were missing the check and act or the study and act. So we, we saw that leader standard work was actually the, the check or, or the study in the system. And probably the majority of organisations doing improvement programs have some sort of approaches in this area. So they might have tier meetings and, and, and so forth. And probably the Gemba Walk is, is a particularly popular uh, tool. The problem being that it's usually interpreted as a tool. So in other words, we have a once a week, uh, one hour walk. We don't quite know what we're doing. We go and have a random conversation. We probably tell people what to do. And in many cases, we probably do more harm than good. So actually what we found on the leader standard work when we started thinking about it, it's much, much more than just the Gemba walk. It's actually about the observation. It's about asking people what they need to do to become better. What help do they need? And, and, and if it's going well, giving them strong recognition and positive feedback, which obviously increases the level of engagement. And if it's not going well, trying to resist blaming people because it's not going well. If anything, anyone has to be blamed. It's actually the managers for not creating the environment where people can actually improve. So hence, what we've done is if it's not going well, what have we learned and what do we need to learn further? So in other words, what we're doing there is creating a learning opportunity. So if you take the few organizations that think like that, like the Toyotas of the world, for example, the key role of the manager is actually checking whether or not we're running the organization to standard 
and we're actually achieving the gains and we're we're achieving what we need to do in terms of strategy we're actually checking whether the right behavior is in place and if it's not we're then spending time developing coaching either through formal courses or actually mostly from on the job and ongoing coaching and development which takes us into the last segment which is the learning and development which is very much linking in with what we were talking earlier about the peter senge that actually we're working through systems but ultimately it's about the learning and development if you can increase the learning and development from sort of this rate to this rate for the individuals and teams you're actually increasing the ability of the organization from this to this for the next cycle around. So hence the learning and development is is absolutely key, but almost almost no one in the sort of improvement community sort of quite joined that together. And, 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 And it's an HR thing. And hence it's pushed from the HR community as sort of standard off the shelf courses and so forth, which actually often don't land. So there's many organizations I've been into that have, you know, great leadership development courses, you know, and there's a whole agenda put on by the HR department and people do it because they sort of have to tick the box on their career development, but they don't use, use those skills. So how do those skills relate to doing a Gemba walk? And people can't make those connections. So the connections are, what's my behavior on the leadership walk? What situational leadership do I need to apply when I'm doing the Gemba walk? How am I actually doing plan, do, check, act on the Gemba walk, not just doing the do? So actually bringing it together as a whole system in terms of the technical and, and cultural and, and learning side of things. So hence, that's the sort of B-skill model. And obviously, going round the model, you could say it's an annual cycle or it's a quarterly cycle or it's a monthly cycle. But each of those four elements should also have plan, do, check inside of it all of them so hence we're not just creating those core operating systems we're actually actively working on improving those systems over a, over a period of time so hence it's a sort of interlocking series of plan do check act cycles is is the way that we see uh, the, the, the b-skilled model peter that was an amazing description of it like thank you I I gained a lot myself from that run through. Now, Peter, you mentioned earlier that very few, if any company you've seen has really nailed the full quadrant right across the board of the Biskilled model. What do you see as you go around companies and you've been going around companies for a long, long time? What stops the businesses really putting their effort into these aspects? What do you think is the biggest challenges that companies face? Well, I think one challenge is the senior leadership team in most organizations don't really understand how to improve the organization. The problem with that is if you get to be a senior executive, it's extremely difficult to be humble enough to actually say, I don't understand this lean stuff, this agile stuff. I don't understand situational leadership because, you know, if you've become a senior person, you, you almost have this, well, I should know everything and and I should go on learning and I should talk to people. I should go and benchmark organizations and and, and so forth. But there's very few that that actually do that. So I I think that's one of the impediments. I think the second one is, is still the functional hierarchies are are a problem. So, you know, when we, when we think of, you know, lean, we probably think that's in the ops box. Um, and we think of agile, we probably think of that is in the IT box or the product development box. And we think of, you know, Six Sigma, we probably think that's in the quality box. Um, and we think of leadership development, that's in the HR box. Uh, and the reality is we probably need elements from each of these 
as well as elements from other boxes, you know, other functions as well. And, and actually, it's very, again, very few organizations that can think outside of their function. So, you know, quality people to say lean is great or ops people to say agile is great. You know, it, it doesn't sort of happen. I think those are probably two of the biggest impediments. I suppose the other one I sort of touched on there is senior guys who are sort of creating the right momentum and, you know, making this happen tend to be a little bit insular. So they don't tend to go out in uh, and, and see other organizations and see what the art of the possible is. And, and, I, and I think that's probably one of the things that is actually holding them back. And, and certainly when I've been out and I've taken these senior people and we've shown them some of these organizations, you know, the, the lights just come on. And they come back so passionate and so fired up and so wanting to do this sort of approach. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. But it's, it's actually quite difficult to prize them away from, you know, we don't have time for this, you know, or we don't think we need it and, and so forth. So I suppose those, are, those might be the three uh, biggest, uh, biggest things. And obviously they're related to each other. Peter, is that final one about what you've seen where you get a senior leader out and you get them to another site and they get to just clear their mind and see and learn and they get aha moments? Is that a big reason that led you to the Enterprise Excellence Network and what you're working on now? Was, it, was that a big driver in that regard? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, I think that was one of the reasons that we did that. And uh, I, I suppose there were mechanisms for doing that in some countries. And, you know, there were forums for that. But it generally wasn't incredibly strong or, or it was local networks in, you know, a small geographical area. And I, I suppose the other reflection I had is, you know, we, we've probably all been to some of these, you know, big conferences and so forth, where you get people pitching up and doing their talk and this sort of thing. And I found them sort of useful, but sort of frustrating as well, because, you know, simply you always wondered whether the person was looking for a new job. <laughs> it was giving the talk. Um, and then I suppose that community, the people organizing it, I, I felt they were increasingly selling speaking slots to sort of suppliers and vendors. And, and hence some of the quality of those sessions was not great. And even the talks that I was seeing, I was sort of seeing them as, you know, really rather average in terms of the content. And, you know, this is how we put our improvement program together. And I sort of think, well, you know, has nothing moved on? You know, where, where's the stuff on behavioral deployment? Where's the stuff on leader standard work? Where's the, where's the stuff on creating a learning system? And I wasn't seeing any of these things. And I also wasn't seeing some of the very best companies just stopped going and talking at those events because they sort of thought, well, why am I talking? Because they don't really want me to talk about some of this stuff. They don't really understand it. And, and hence, I saw a sort of bit of a gap. And I also had some companies saying to me, well, you know, could you bring people together? Could, could you do this sort of thing? And, and that's what we started to do with Enterprise Excellence Network. So, I mean, what we do is we have a sort of club of companies in, in Europe. Um, maybe we'll go further than that at some point. Don't know. Um, and and we go round to sites that are sort of like Shingo winning sites or or that type of level of organization. Yeah, the best of the best. Yeah, and, and and many of the members are from those sort of organizations. What do you do after you win those sort of awards? Well, what do you do next? You know, you've got to benchmark organizations that are at your level or even in, in some areas. And certainly what we found through the Essence of Excellence book was that no organization was fantastic at everything. So even if they were fantastic at, you know, continuous improvement or, or some other element, 
they might not be fantastic at the learning and development. Yeah, that's brilliant because I've I've experienced it myself, Peter. Exactly what you said. Going to conferences where you feel like it's staged, or really the the speakers are there for another reason. And I've also sure. been to networking groups where you're really not seeing anything new or being challenged. Sure. So it's a yeah. really good gap that you've created to be able to really help the best of the best get together and learn and grow. But you know. Going forward, Peter, where's your sights now? Like you've had such a purposeful, motivated career, environmental, driven for business improvement, driven to help society. Where's your focus now going forward? Like if you look to the future, what's driving you now and what's your focus now? Well, I, I suppose I, I'm sort of going through a period of change and reflection. Uh, so it's, it's probably a good question just now. I think one of the key things is I, I want to do more on joining this sort of bridge together. And obviously with Chris, we, we worked on the Be Skilled model together. And uh, we're actually in the process of writing a, a new book, which is going slightly slower than it might with restrictions on visits and so forth over this period. But we've, we're working with the Shingo Institute and we are actually taking that topic of best of the best. You know, there's a limit of how many people you can take to all of these really good companies. So what, what Chris and I are doing is in collaboration and, and we'll publish it through the, the Shingo Institute uh, is writing a book that is actually on some of those experiences. What's the best bits of Shingo winners? Um, which is probably like essence of excellence on steroids, because obviously we, we could best, only yeah. work with the companies that we'd work with, but we, we certainly hadn't been to all these Shingo winning organizations. So that's one area that, uh, that we're working on. The other that um, I've been working on for probably 12 months or so is, is actually trying to understand a little bit more of the background of bringing the bridge together. So why is it that people on the other side of the bridge, the sort of HR community, don't really understand, you know, Lean, Sigma, Agile, etc.? Why, why do they not understand that? And what are the opportunities for them in understanding that? So I have a research uh, program, which I'm, I'm doing with a company called ST Microelectronics, which is called Lean in HR and HR for Lean. So lean in HR is basically saying until HR can understand what lean is or enterprise excellence is, they can't really contribute. And hence the courses and things will be in isolation of the pull of the line managers, etc. So how do you do lean in an HR environment? So we're actually working on that. And, and they've got some, some examples in that organization which are so far beyond what I'm seeing elsewhere. It's untrue, particularly in the Asian uh, sites, uh, Singapore and India in particular. And then the second part of that is HR for Lean. So in other words, not just what is the contribution of, you know, quality and ops and, and, and IT and, and product development, but what is the contribution of HR? And, and the interesting thing is, you know, even in some of the Shingo winning sites and, and perhaps probably even the best site that's closest to the model, I, I went and interviewed the HR folk and said, well, what's your contribution to enterprise excellence? And they sort of looked at me and said, well, you know, we've got the visual management board and we do our stand-up meetings and we do this. And, and I say, well, that's all fantastic. And, and you do that really well. But so do all the other office functions. So what's different HR than, for instance, purchasing or finance or something like that? And they say, well, you know, I guess it's similar. I say, well, surely you should be leading. How are you involved in the behavioral side? How are you involved in uh, creating like leadership skills? How are you involved in coaching line managers in doing this stuff? And they say, well, we don't really do that. So, so in other words, the role of HR, I think, is enormous. 
So I'm starting to think about, you know, how we can actually bring them in and, and how we can, you know, use that uh, as a force going forward. So I've got about a year's worth of research under my belt. There's about 1,200 PowerPoint slides in place on that, which I've been doing, trying to understand that. And, and, and hence, it's, it's bringing that to the fore. So maybe some point future, there'll be a book or something. Uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't quite got the output. I'm sort of getting the research in, in place at this point. So, Peter, I think you're onto something. This time of reflection, which I guess COVID's helped with a bit more too you're onto something there. If you can bring that bridge together more through a focus there with HR and then the excellent side of the business and bring them together as one, that would create more Shingo potential award winners and companies really achieving excellence. Peter, what advice would you give to someone looking to start a journey of like we've been talking about? What would you say to them? Because I know there's many paths anyone can take, but what would you say to them to start with? Just the one thing you'd say, look, to start here. What would you, your advice be? I think my advice is go, go see someone better than you. Yeah, that's a great advice. Yeah. You know, they may not be perfect, but if they're better than you, there's something to learn. Any firm on any office complex or any industrial estate, there must be someone there better than you. So, you know, go and knock on your neighbours and have a look around. You know, even if you just start at that local level, I, I would do that. Yeah, that's impressive. Go look, see. Yeah. Learn. Yeah, that's great. And Peter, my final question is, what have you learned recently that you really haven't known before? What's been a recent insight that you've gained in relation to anything that just made you go, wow? Mm, That's a tough one. Um, I mean, I've had a number of those, you know, during my career. Have I had one recently? I, I don't think so. Not in the very recent, you know, recent past. But I think, I mean, the biggest aha, I suppose, over the time, which is probably not that recent, is that if you if you want to create enterprise excellence in the organisation, there's probably two key people uh, to to do that. And and this was certainly one of the things that that Chris and I noticed when we were writing the Essence of Excellence book. Is it was the the head of the the site manufacturing whatever it, it was the mentality of that person and the the person driving improvement you know the ci manager or whatever and actually that was the differentiation between most of the sites that got in the book is that you had two good people in that state and we found it probably wasn't enough to have one or the other because if you had a good top person but no improvement then it didn't work and if you had a great improvement person without the ear of the top person, it probably didn't work either. And where we actually see both of those in place, you, you, you can't quite overcome everything, but it's pretty close to it. Well, Peter, it's been such an honour being able to learn about your backstory and history and also learn from your knowledge and expertise. I really appreciate your time and I'm sure everyone okay. else listening to the podcast will too. Thank you, Peter. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay.